Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. I'm really grateful to be able to preach to you guys this morning. Um, as most of you know, uh, just uh, how long ago? Two months ago? Just this past semester, I uh, handed over the responsibility for the college ministry to Alex McNeely, and with that, my weekly preaching responsibility. And um, at first, it was something of a relief to not have to be out every week or every once a week, but every week. I'm sorry, I'm tired. Um, at first it was something of a relief, and especially a relief of the responsibility. Preaching's a heavy burden, and, uh, and to be able to uh, be released from that pressure was something of a relief. And in some ways it still is. It hasn't quite all sunk in yet, but it's also been a real change and a real difficult thing for me. And so I don't take for granted being able to stand up before you guys and preach this morning. Um, let me also take this opportunity to say that uh, if you were at last week's Sunday evening service, um, you may have heard for the first time that we've been exploring some programmatic changes to our children's programs. Awana was mentioned. If you guys have any questions about that, please feel free to come and talk to me and ask me your questions or share with me your concerns. I'm very happy to, to hear what you're thinking and to talk with you about what we're thinking for the future. Now, with that said, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. We read the entire passage, beginning in verse 1, then we'll come back and pick up in verse 5. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw, the wickedness, saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth... And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. And set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What happened in the days of Noah is one of, in my opinion, the three most horrific things that has ever happened in the history of the world. There's the day first that Adam and Eve, or Adam listened to Eve, his wife, and reached out and took fruit from the tree and ate it and rebelled against God. And there's the day that the sons of Adam reached out and laid their hands on the Son of God and nailed him to a tree. And then there's the day of Noah. And until the final judgment, there will not be anything that approaches the day of Noah. Noah was the last of the old world patriarchs. He lived to be 960 years old, but in his time, it was in his time that God decreed that our days would cease at 120 years. He knew what the Nephilim were, and he knew what Moses meant when he spoke of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Noah walked with God, and Noah escaped the most devastating judgment God has ever brought down on the sons of Adam. How did it come to this? How did it come to a flood, a universal flood? How is it that we went from Adam and Eve in the garden in paradise in bliss to the destruction of the entire world in just the first six chapters of Genesis? Well, did you notice how verse 5 began? Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The wickedness of man was great on the earth. Adam, Adam's children, were doing wicked things. And more than that, it says every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. Is there a more damning way to describe how wicked the sons of Adam had become? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There was no goodness in the sons of Adam. His thoughts, his feelings, his desires, his intentions, 
They were all gone. There was no restraint left. This is one of those passages where you might be tempted to think that this statement here is a general doctrine of, uh, a general statement of the doctrine of original sin. That we all sin in Adam and we all inherit Adam's nature and this is what we're all like deep down in our heart of hearts. And that is true of us. This is what we're like when we're left to ourselves. The scriptures make that very plain. Perhaps Romans 3 summarizes our natural sinful condition best by pulling together a number of other biblical passages that testify to our sinfulness. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is who we all are apart from the grace of God. Nevertheless, the grace of God does restrain even fallen man. What this passage is teaching us is that in the time of Noah... The wheels had fallen off. There were no restraints left. Adam's children were completely given over to sin. They had steeped in it for lives that spanned hundreds of years. They grew more and more calloused and more and more perverse in their rebellion against the living God. Think of the most decadent place that you imagine on on the earth today. What would it be? Vegas? I don't know. Now think of that being every corner of the earth. And then magnify the wickedness. This is what the earth was like in Noah's day. The longer they lived, the more they disregarded God. But God saw. God always sees. The passage says that God saw the wickedness of man. Now, why would it say that? Why would it say that God saw the wickedness of man? Did God just suddenly look down and think, huh, I'd never noticed that before. I've really let things go. Time to step in and make it right. Of course not. Scripture says that God saw for two reasons. One, one reason is to remind us that no matter how self-deluded we become about our sin, no matter how, con- how much we may convince ourselves that God doesn't see, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't know, God sees everything. Not only the things that we do, not only the things that we do publicly, the things that we do in private, Not only the things we do in private, every thought and intention of our hearts, he knows, he sees. And he doesn't delay his judgment because he doesn't see, because he doesn't care. That's the second thing that this teaches us. 
God sees, God delays his judgment, not because he doesn't care, but because he is patient, because he is kind, because he does not desire that any should perish. Brothers and sisters, God sees the sins of your heart and the things that you do in secret. God knows, and you are here right now, this morning, alive, in church, not stranded on the side of a road, because God is patient with you, because God is tender towards you, because he does not want you to perish. He sees, he sees, and he delays his judgment, but he will not delay forever. Verse 6 says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God hates sin. He hates your sin. It grieves him in his heart. Now, I want to be very careful with this verse because there are some of us here who I think want to take this verse and make it mean something that it doesn't. And so I want to say a word to those of you who consider yourselves good, reformed folk. If that's not you, that's okay. Stay with me. When I was a young freshly minted Calvinist, I would have loved to have stood right up here in front of you and explained to you from this passage how God is in fact never truly grieved or sorrowful in any ultimate sense, that it's impossible for him to be sorry about anything or to repent because he's sovereign over all things and he does whatever he pleases, and that the Holy Spirit is just using simple language here to accommodate us in our stupidity and our inability as creatures to understand God's character. So whatever you think about this passage, don't think that what God's actually saying is that he's sorry and grieved. Now, you know, I hope most of you know, that there's a good deal of truth in what the words that just came out of my mouth, right? But you know what else? The Holy Spirit is pretty wise and pretty smart and is sort of good with words. And when he speaks, he kind of knows what he's saying. He could have, you know, figured out a way to say that God doesn't really get grieved or sorry. Because, you know, I just figured out a way to say that, and I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit's smarter than me. Here's another idea. If we find ourselves wishing that the Holy Spirit could have been a little more articulate so that we don't have any theological problems on our hands, if we find ourselves really anxious to have an explanation for God grieving about something and being sorry about something in such a way that it allows us to escape the force of the actual words that God says, then maybe the problem is with us. Do you understand? Here's my point. Instead of trying to figure out how this passage fits in our theological framework, let's trust the Holy Spirit, who says that God was grieved in his heart and sorry that he made Adam. And then let's allow that to hit us in the gut the way God meant it to. Instead of robbing it of its force through theological gymnastics. God hates sin. God is grieved over sin. And God is grieved and angered over the corruption of his good creation and of his own image in Adam. God is so angry over sin that the psalm says he is angry with the wicked every day. 
He is so angry and grieved in his heart over sin that at one point in time he destroyed the whole world and everything in it. He's so angry and grieved over sin that one day he's going to destroy the world again. He's so angry and grieved over sin that he's prepared a special place called hell where the fire does not cease and the worm does not die. A place of eternal torment and punishment for all who sin against him. It would have been better for the soul in hell to have never been born. It would almost, almost have been better for Adam to have never been created than for the holy God to have to suffer under Adam's wickedness, to endure it. Almost. That's how much God hates sin. That's how much God hates your sin. That's how much God hates and is grieved over the sin of this world. He sees, he watches, he knows, and he is very patient. But one day that patience will come to an end. The door will close and the flood will come. And woe to every one of us who are not found safe within the ark. He has done it once. And in doing it once, he has proved that he will not, or that he will do it again. Ephesians 5 warns us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In verse 7, this is what it says. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. Now, do you remember Genesis 1? Do you remember how pleased God was with all that he made? You remember how many times he said it was good? Does God do anything poorly? Does God make anything that he does not love? It was good. It was good. It was very good. This world is the world that God made. He could have made a billion other worlds, a billion other creations that our limited minds can't begin to understand. Only he knows. But this is what he made. And this is what he destroyed because of sin. God is so angry over sin and so grieved over it, it's not enough for him to destroy man. He will destroy everything man has touched because everything man has touched he has corrupted this is what he's telling Noah it has fallen with man it has fallen under Adam here in Genesis God is entering into a time of judgment which the world had not seen before and has not yet known there have been many judgments in many different parts of the world different kingdoms different nations different peoples but so far There has never been anything like this. If you want to look back over history and see how grieved God is over sin, there are two huge places to look. One is the crucifixion, where the infinite, eternal, sinless, perfect, all-glorious Son of God was made sin on our behalf and sacrificed for us by God at the hands of sinful men. And then there's the flood. 
The day that God took the world he made and covered the mountains with water until he had snuffed the life out of every last living thing. Every man, every woman, every child, every last beast of the field, every last bird of the air, every last creeping thing, except for one man, one single son of Adam and his family, and a handful of beasts and birds and creeping things of every kind spared to repopulate the earth and start over. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Why Noah? God is kind. God found favor... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God had mercy on Noah and on Noah's family. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because Noah was a righteous and just man, blameless in his time. He was godly. With God's help, with God's favor, Noah was a righteous man. Now, consider for a minute how difficult it must have been to be Noah. Do you find it difficult to be a good Christian in Bloomington? Do you find it difficult to be a good Christian in your workplace? Do you find it difficult to be a good Christian in your classes or on the soccer field? Do you find it tempting to conform yourself to the people that you're around? Especially when you're around those that have no fear of God. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult enough to be godly when I'm by myself, much less when I'm surrounded by those who don't fear God. But was there ever a more corrupt time or place than Noah's? Noah must have been surrounded on all sides by sin and wickedness and perversity. But Noah not only resisted the temptation to conform himself to the wickedness of those around him, the Bible tells us he was a preacher of righteousness for 600 years before he entered into the ark. That's how old he was when the flood came, 600 years old. Those of you who are relatively older, not old by Noah's standard, but who are weary of the fight against sin, against yourself, against the devil, against the world, consider that. Noah endured his own sin and the sin of the world for 600 years before he got on that ark. And when he got on that ark, he was not done enduring his own sin. He had 360 years left. He didn't grow cynical. He didn't grow weak in faith. He did sin. What help did Noah have? What strength? Noah was alone. He didn't have a church. He didn't have a body of believers. He didn't have a Bible. The whole world was rushing toward death and destruction and judgment. And there was literally only one man on the planet standing firm and saying no for 600 years. John Calvin calls Noah, quote, a strenuous and invincible combatant, end quote. Noah was a righteous man. Now, how did Noah get to be that way? The Bible tells us that Noah walked with God. 
Noah, like all of us, had two options. He could walk with men and fear men and go the way of the world. Or he could walk with God and fear God and not have any regard for the thoughts and opinions of men. Noah chose wisely. And no doubt, Noah began choosing wisely from an early age. He, we know that Noah had the benefit of godly ancestors. His father was a prophet who prophesied about him. His great-grandfather was Enoch, who walked with God and was no more. Do you think that Noah, one day out of the blue, was able to stand firm in the midst of the most wicked and cruel and heartless and perverse generation that had ever walked the earth? Do you think he was able, one day out of the blue, to stand up and build an ark and stand up to the ridicule and mockery that came along with it? Perhaps... The Holy Spirit is powerful. But I don't think that's what happened. I think Noah was established as a preacher of righteousness long before God ever called on him to build an ark. I think that's why God called on him to build the ark. Just like David was a warrior long before he charged at Goliath in the battlefield. Both men God singled out for exceptional responsibility. He singled out David for leading the nation of Israel and being her first great king. But how much more with Noah? Noah had to be the father of a new humanity, a new Adam and a new earth. The Bible is clear that Noah was chosen because he was blameless, not without sin, but really righteous and righteous from the heart. Noah, like his great-grandfather Enoch, walked with God. He walked in God's ways. He was intimate with God. He trusted God. He believed God. He feared God. And likely from an early age. In Micah 6.8, God tells us what is good. What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That was the kind of man that Noah was in the midst of a more wicked and perverse generation than you and I live in. With far less help than you and I have. Verses 11 through 21. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Behold... I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Consider the grace and the kindness of God that he so patiently bore with the wickedness of man for so long, and then when the time came, still had mercy, still spared Noah and his family, still spared us. He did not have to warn Noah. He did not have to save Noah. He didn't have to save Noah's family. He didn't even have to save the animals, but he did. God preserved us. He preserved our people. He preserved our families, our family of all the families of the earth. 
he saved ours. We are Noah's children. We are who God left behind. And here we are. Here stands the entire human race. Again, stretched to every corner of the globe as a living testimony to the mercy and tenderness of God. To his kindness. Whenever you see or hear God's warnings of judgment, take them to heart. They are his kindness to you. He holds them out to you so that you will turn to him in holy fear and repent and be saved. Which is what happened with Noah. Genesis 6.22, thus Noah did. According to all that God had commanded him, so he did. He just did it. He obeyed. Hebrews 11.7 speaks about this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in fear, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, put yourselves in Noah's position. God Almighty has just told you that he's destroying the entire world but you. You have to build an ark, you have to fill it with animals and food, and if you obey, you will live and be blessed. How would you have responded? Noah was afraid, and Noah obeyed. Noah believed God. He feared God, so he obeyed God, and he started building an ark, a boat. And we don't know where it was in the wilderness, in the desert, who knows. But it must have looked insane. We don't know how long it took him. It's very possible it took him 100 years. The passage begins with saying that when he was 500 years old, he became the father of Hemsham and Japheth. That's the very end of chapter 5. And then when Noah's 600 is when he gets on the ark. Could have been a full 100 years he took to build that thing. It's a big boat. How much help did he have? How old were his sons? Can you imagine the ridicule that Noah must have faced? And do you think that Noah warned people of the coming judgment? He must have. He was a preacher of righteousness. I don't know how long he actually spent building the ark. I don't know how many people even knew that it existed. What I do know is that Noah didn't care. Noah obeyed God. God told Noah, judgment is coming. Noah believed. Noah was afraid, so Noah obeyed. He built an ark. He got his family inside of it before judgment came. He didn't listen to anybody else. He didn't care when he was rejected. Instead, he probably pleaded with them. And then judgment came, just like God said it would, and Noah was ready. Can you imagine what it was like can you imagine what it would have been like to be outside the ark? Two weeks ago when Pastor Bailey was preaching this, he talked about a painting that he had seen of a father holding up his son, trying to put him on top of a rock or a mountain, and there's a tiger up there. The rain came, and it came, and it came, and it came, and it kept coming. And there was a real flood. 
Do you think that people came to Noah and begged in? Do you think that Noah and his family could hear screams from inside the boat? How long do you think it actually took? How fast do you think the waters rose? How high do you think they climbed? How long do you think they swam? Until they were overcome. Men, women, and children. And only Noah and his household saved. What do you think it looked like when he got out of the boat? What do you think the ground was like? Was it pristine and Eden-like? Were the bodies washed to the sea? At the end of the day, the only thing that separated Noah from the rest of the world is that God had mercy on him, and he got into the ark. That's it. There's a reason I want us to think about how terrible the flood actually was. Because as devastating as it was, it is only a type. It is only a shadow of what is still to come. This is the most severe judgment our world has ever known, and we don't like to think about judgment. Not at all. I can't tell you how difficult it was for me to be motivated to study this passage. I did not want to do it, because it's hard to look judgment in the face. It's painful. We don't like to think about judgment because it's frightening. We don't like to think about past judgment because it reminds us the truth that we all know deep down that there is another judgment coming. We will stand before God and that troubles our consciences and what shall we do? How can we bear up under the burden of our consciences? When I think of the flood, really think about it. I tend to identify more with those outside of the boat than in because I think of my sin and I think how how could I have stood When our consciences are troubled, we want to run, we want to hide, we want to cover our ears. What we don't want to do is take responsibility for the condition of our souls and really face God. We don't want to have to think about standing before him. We don't want to have to acknowledge and remember that, yes, he does see. He always has seen every thought of my mind every intention of my heart, everything I've done in secret. And more than that, we don't want to have to think about our neighbors and our friends standing before the judgment seat of God. We don't want the responsibility of caring and tending to our own souls and dealing with God. And we don't want the responsibility of living before God in the light of eternity, of living in light of the coming judgment, and of telling our neighbors and warning them of the judgment to come. It's difficult. It's too much to bear. It's hard. So we will trivialize at every chance we get the judgment of God, and we will wear beautiful gold crosses around our necks and tattoos on our arms, and we will paint the nursery walls with boats, with giraffes, cute little giraffes sticking out of the top. 
And there, we've talked about Noah and the flood, and aren't the animals cute? Well, trivialize it. Our murals will have the cute giraffes and maybe some dolphins swimming beside the boat. There won't be screams or panic or terror or floating bodies. No horror, just cuteness. This really happened. It is the true history of this world. But it was a picture written into human history by God. A picture that points to something bigger. And far more intense. Something that is coming that we do not want to be reminded of. God destroyed the world once through water. And he will bring it into judgment yet again through fire. Second Peter 3 says this. The heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There is another judgment coming. And it is a judgment of fire. It is the last judgment. It is the final judgment. And on that day, God himself will rend the heavens and come down. And we will all face him. And there will be no escape for us. Next to that judgment, the flood will look like a pleasant end. In that day, those that God considers righteous will pass on to everlasting life. And those that God numbers among the wicked, God will damn to everlasting punishment in hell. It is a terrifying thing. It is a terrifying day. But, just as in the day of Noah, there is an ark. There is hope. And the door is wide open. Noah and his whole house were able to find refuge in the ark, and so were all the beasts of the earth. And today there is refuge from the coming judgment. It is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. God is just, and he will punish sin. But God is also full of mercy, and he is truly unwilling that any should perish. He stands and he calls us all to flee the wrath, to come, to come to Jesus, to repent of our sins, to look to him for forgiveness and for refuge, for shelter. He stands ready and willing to receive everyone who would come to him. Would you be like Noah and be saved from the wrath to come? Then come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and hide yourself in him. Come. Turn from your sins. Come. Come to Jesus. And then go. Take to the world this good news. Because the door isn't open just to you or us here. Whosoever will may enter in. Don't be ashamed or intimidated, but stand firm as Noah stood. Tell them that there is a judgment coming. There is a day of reckoning. All men 
will give an account for everything they've ever done. But take heart, because Christ has made a way for you to be spared from the wrath to come. He has taken the punishment of your sins on his own head. And he has freely offered himself in your place so that you may come to God and be saved. And take heart. Because unlike the days of Noah, this is still a day of salvation. Judgment has not come yet because God is patient and kind. And he desires, he desires that all men should be saved. And he has made promises and he has promised to work through his word. He promises to change hearts and lives. He promises to change your hearts and lives through this good news. We will not stand alone when the day of judgment comes. We will be surrounded by a throng of brothers and sisters who have hidden with us in Christ, just as Noah hid in the ark. The door is open. So come, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid to face down your sin and your bad conscience. And don't be afraid to take it to the world to your neighbors and your friends. God does and will work. If we take hold of Christ by faith, we'll pass through the water and fire of judgment rather than be consumed by them. This is what it means to be a Christian, so come. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so full of mercy and have been so full of mercy from the day our first father Adam sinned. Thank you, Father, for warning us of the judgment to come. Teach us to tremble and fear, to repent of our sins and to turn and obey you. Help each one of us here fly to Jesus. And give us faith, Father, to love our neighbors, to love our families, to love this city. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.